All right, troops, strong and conditioned, live and direct from Glasgow, Scotland. And tonight I am very honoured, extremely honoured, some would say slightly nervous, to have the one and only Alexander Bromley, Premier Strength Coach and all-round strength training good guy. Alex, how are you, brother? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure to have you on. So, Alexander, for a lot of my listeners who are unaware of your presence in the world of fitness, could you please kindly do the needful and give us a, a brief introduction as to who Alexander Bromley is? Sure thing. Um, I've been training for probably 25 years and I've com been competing in strongman for close to 20. Uh, currently, I have a couple of books out and a growing YouTube channel that uh, is doing very well. And I'm very humbled for the reception that it's got. But uh, everything up to this point has just been generally uh, trying to teach people how to get stronger, how to make the most of what they have in terms of equipment, uh, how to bias their training towards their goals and solve a lot of problems, problems that I had. I know I had a ton of problems when I was younger, when there was uh, less information than there is now, which that could be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but um, yeah, that, that's about it. Just uh, last few decades spent competing, interacting in the strength community, meeting some good people, reading a lot, researching a lot, learning a lot, and now hopefully disseminating that information to uh, the people that watch. Okay, so let's roll back on that a little bit and let's talk about your introduction to training because you said something very interesting there, which has been a running theme throughout a couple of my podcasts and it's regarding information. So like, how did you start training? What, what, what was the origins of your journey? So I started working out. It kind of bleeds into this one event that kind of changed the course of my life. I, I was like 12 years old. I was young for my age, young for my age. I was young for uh, my grade when I was in uh, middle school and high school. So the United States, uh, ninth through 12th grade is, is high school. And usually you're about 18 years old when you graduate high school at grade 12. So going into grade nine, usually kids are 14. I was 12 going into high school, but I was always kind of a bigger kid. I was overweight. And I never had a lot of confidence and it was just super intimidating being around all these other kids. I had never played sports. I'd never really been active. I did well in school, read a lot, did a lot of artistic stuff. And uh, I decided that if I didn't do something to either get myself in better shape, get a little bit of confidence that way, or to expand my social network, that the longer I waited, the less likely it was going to be until I did that or the less likely it would be that I would do that at all. And that just seemed self-evident to me when I was at that age. So I made a big jump and I joined the football team, American football, which is very heavily influenced by weightlifting. It's a power sport. So if you're going to do cleans and deadlifts and squats and presses in high school, that's going to be like the one sport that really leans on that. So I joined the football team and I had no idea how to play it. I never watched sports. It was one of the most terrifying things I ever did. But that got me in the weight room on a regular basis. And then getting out of high school, I was a terrible athlete. I'm still a terrible athlete, but I loved weight training. And it was so gratifying to have this thing I could commit myself to and chart progress in a very clean and obvious way. And it just stuck with me. So I got out of high school in 2003 and I was desperate to find something that was competitive and structured to keep that going. And at the time, I mean, we're, we're talking pre-YouTube, pre-Instagram, pre-Facebook. Uh, I don't even know. I mean, Google, I think, was in its infancy back then. So finding stuff on the internet, I mean, you think this stuff is niche now? Back then, it was non-existent, you know? And I lived in, and I, I like kind of framing it this way because I'm the old man, so I get to say back in my day, but the way the sports have grown in the last 10 or 15 years has been absolutely astounding because when I started, uh, looking for competitions. I lived in California. There's 40 million people in California. And I had to drive from, it was kind of Los Angeles area. I had to drive like five hours North to the middle of nowhere 
to find some contest that had like 14 people in it to do my first strongman contest. And it was just by chance that I found it at the time. I didn't know what strongman was or how that was different from powerlifting or Olympic lifting or whatever. So anyways, that that's the story of how I got into it. It was really just wanting to keep the competitive nature of lifting going. And that is really just kind of what fell into my lap. Yeah. So just out of interest, how, why did you start high school at the age of 12? Um, Part of it, there were two things happening. I got put in earlier uh, than normal. I I don't remember why exactly. It's not like I had I was bright or anything like that. I think I was just harassing my mom. I wanted to go to school. And she's like, no problem. Like, free daycare. I'll, I'll drop you off at school earlier. <laughs> so I think I got put in. Like, they could have waited a year. And I think they opted to put me in a year early. And then there was another incident. I ended up skipping eighth grade. Again, not because I'm smart. Um I had some issue in my parents' solution, which I think was probably, in retrospect, not a great one, uh, was to uh, just eliminate the problem. It was a social issue I was having with bullying. And their solution to it was just to skip the next grade. And it was very easy to do. They just had to talk to the principal. I had to take a test. It's, it, it wasn't an IQ or a testing-based uh, decision, but it just happened to land me into high school uh, earlier than I otherwise would have. And uh, I mean, there were some good things. I had to mature kind of fast. I had to hang, but there were also some rough things, you know, there's a case to be made that if you're allowed to grow a little bit more with more of an appropriate, uh, uh, peer group that, that, that might be better. And I could see both sides, but you know, end of the day I got lemon. So I made lemonade. <laughs> so when you started your weight training odyssey, what, what what was the first program you, that you sunk your teeth into, and what, did this program had a did it have a profound effect on your journey? Um, that's a, a tricky one to answer because the way I got into, I mean, it was a long time before I had done anything that you would call a program, and that's part of the reason that I spent so much time talking about programming. Now it's like obvious, it's built in. If you get into strength training, the first thing is, you know, there's this whole sea of programs now that you can follow. So back in the day, the only thing I could find was uh, bodybuilding magazines. That That's all there was. If you wanted to do anything in the gym, if you wanted any information on how to lift weights better or how to grow muscle or get stronger better, you had to go buy the magazines with the... Uh, you know, 300 pound oiled up guys in speedos, even if that wasn't particularly of interest to you. And I do have a lot of fondness for bodybuilding. I have a lot of respect for the sport. I know a lot of bodybuilders and that type of training early on absolutely molded me. And it's something that I preach. I don't have a bodybuilder's physique, but there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of those training methods through my teen years, when I didn't know any better from the ages of like 12 to probably 17 or 18, I was a lot more well-rounded than I think a lot of people are getting now. Uh, I had done a lot of smaller movements that uh, people tend to forget about or slack off on. And I think I was much better set up for when I did get more strength specific. As I did focus down on strength, when I decided that's the thing I wanted to do, um, I think the first thing I found was like an old powerlifting USA. And I was like, I can't believe this is a thing. I had no idea that that was even a, a publication. And what I got from it was that you just go heavier and you do fewer reps. So I was like, okay, now I get to pile on all the weight. So that was delayed where I think a lot of people start off piling on the weight that was delayed. And I grew like a weed from that, but it wasn't until probably my, my late teens, early twenties, where I actually had a concept of like, oh, this is what a block of training is. This is what you're supposed to do in a block of training. This is what you're supposed to do in the next block. This is how it all is encompassed in one complete, what you would call a macro cycle. It was a long time before I did something like that. Uh, and honestly, I'm hard pressed to tell you what the first example was. I I've, I did so many back then before I got anything that looked like a, kind of a, a set method that I had a preference for. Do you think that looking back on it, do you think the lack of information was ultimately beneficial for your progress? There are definitely cases to be to be made for both. Uh, the lack of information meant that you had to experiment. So if you weren't in the gym actually getting after it, you weren't you weren't doing anything. Whereas 
now it very much seems there's a flood of information. So on the one hand, you have access to really good stuff. But on the other hand, I think it can lead to people doing too much experimentation, whether they're fiddling around within the workout with a lot of erroneous things like doing their, their, you know, 15th technical practice set for their deadlift, you know, cause they think they're, well, I saw this cue and I want to get it just right. And you can do that ad nauseum. You can do that into infinity. And some people do. And I, I had a gym for about six years and I saw that pretty routinely where I would have to say it's good enough. It will get better over time. You got to get the work in. Uh, in addition to that, people can fiddle with their programs. They can jump back and forth. So all of the noise that exists, it's not just that there's so many different things you can fixate on, but it's all the different ways that you could attack strength training. There's so many different schools of thought and they're all their own little hills that have their own methods of execution, their own learning curve. And it's easy to hear all these bits of information and not have it be anything else but noise because you don't know how it's supposed to be sorted in this galaxy of, of different training methods. So it's mind numbing. And I often call back to like martial arts because it's very similar in the way that there's an organic texture to it, but also there is a discipline that has to be followed. But I really wish there was something like a belt system, like a dojo you could go to where you get this hierarchy of information and you can be taught everything in a proper order. Because I do not envy people nowadays because when they get dumped out, it's like, you have your favorite person on YouTube or Instagram. They're all telling you information. There's a lot of overlap, but some of it's kind of specific to their thing. I mean, are you talking about high frequency or low frequency? Are you talking about very specialized powerlifting programs? How is that different from Olympic lifting? Even though we pull a lot of information and research and, uh, and data from both of them, uh, how does bodybuilding fit into this? You know, why are so many world's strongest men, um, doing this where so many of the strongest powerlifters, it's, it's very hard to try to reconcile all of this information. So I think I do bias it. If we have the grand experiment of, of how you would have people get into lifting, I think I would bias towards a system where somebody's given a barbell and told to kind of figure it out. I'm almost inclined yeah. to believe that would lead to a better result over a big population. Yeah. I've always believed that like strength training bodybuilding whatever you wish to call it is a journey of self-experimentation however you made an interesting point regarding that having only access to bodybuilding magazines was the the only information that was available to you at that point and i feel that it's advantageous in the respect that you would only have one program until the next issue came out one month later so you had no choice but to do that program. And a lot of people think that programs are something you master instantly where a good program can take months to tweak and like really get your head around. And in that day, you were forced into that situation where you just had one program and you had to do it. You were doing it for two or three months regardless. And you never really questioned anything then. I've spoke about this before. Back then, you used to believe everything that you read in newspapers. You never questioned the media. If something was, if something was written down on paper, you just took it for gospel. Whereas nowadays, everything is challenged. Absolutely every program that's put out there, every idea, every concept will have people challenging it. So I think what you referred to there with the magazine era brought a lot of freedom to people when it came to training, to finding out what worked themselves and allowing them to master these programs. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good points in there. I mean, talking about self-mastery, uh, N equals one. And I've gotten into it. I, tr I don't get into it too deep. I'd be making every other video about this. If I had the educational chops to really go toe to toe, I spent a lot of time in school and took a lot of the kind of upper division, upper division STEM coursework, but I, I never got one particular degree and spent a long time. But I'm often complaining about the evidence-based side of things when it comes to training. A lot of people appeal to research and exercise science and what the latest meta-analysis shows. And the fact is there are so many different ways to get the human body to grow. That's one of the problems. It would almost be easier if it was a tightrope, 
where you had to do things in the correct order because then everything would revolve around what that order is and making sure that people know how to do it. But we get pulled 18 different ways. So all of the best people in the field, the PhDs, the Brad Schoenfelds, the, the Kriegers, the, the people with the PhDs that put out all the information, they'll tell you flat out the research cannot support uh, training information. You can't use the research. This, the last study that came out to inform what you're supposed to do in your training. That's beyond the scope of what they actually do. And a lot of people make the information or make the mistake of seeing that as something that they can pull out, like some type of special thing that's going to take their training to the next level. And it's not, there's even like one, uh, one um, organization it's run by this guy, Kasim, and it's called N1 as in N equals one. You are a, you are a study with one subject and it is up to you to make the, the tweaks and changes you need to keep going. When you talked about mastering the program, that's something I'm huge on. It almost doesn't matter what program you do because every program you do has a multitude of different points where you could tweak and make small adjustments to make it work for you, which almost makes it a different program at some point, right? As you personalize it. And that's kind of what you should be doing rather than looking at each program as some, um, some key that's going to unlock all of your problems and you just have to bounce around until you find the right key. That's not it at all. And when we get to this discussion of optimal training, that's another one that like makes my blood boil. The optimal program is the one that you take and you do and you master. Uh, the, there's no study. There's no amount of research that's going to show you what is going to be optimal for you given so many years of training and all the experience you've gone through and, and what you did last time. So the whole point of sticking around and doing something long enough to get good at it. It's like, do not jump ship until you've demonstrated that you can take this thing and have something to show for it or else it was wasted time. You haven't learned anything from it. So um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a mess. Um, there's a lot of questions that we've yet to answer. There's a lot of questions that we, we don't even know how to ask them because there's so many different variables, but at the end of the day, I always try to simplify it. Like you start with a baseline of work, don't focus on the optimal amount of work. Don't focus on the perfect structure organization. Just start somewhere. Whatever that baseline is, if you can build off of it in a consistent, predictable order, that's your progressive overload. That's going to cause growth. And the rest is just making sure it's sustainable and then making little tweaks as you go. And most of good training wisdom comes down to that. But you've also got to factor in this a ferocious appetite that exists nowadays for instant gratification, which flies in the face of establishing that baseline. Because you're right, you do have to establish that baseline. You have to go in and it's almost like that 531 concept where you, you lower the weights and you, you get the feel for the weights and you start to build this progression program so that you eventually get to a point where you're satisfied and you know you can have the confidence to to move on at a more ferocious pace. However, nowadays when you're looking at through social media, people just want something now. And it's hard to combat that that appetite, so to speak. Yeah, that's a, a pretty universal thing too. Um, and the field is very consumer driven. And I've made this parallel a lot before as well with other sports where you have something like I imagine soccer in the UK or you have American football on our end or basketball or baseball, whatever it is, it's dominated by the elite and it's the spectator sport that drives advertising dollars. So they're the thing that's driving the sport and everybody else is trying to figure out how to get there and participation is voluntary. And it's like, Hey, if I want to do this thing, if I want to do it in high school or college or in the major leagues, I have to get my shit together and figure out how to do it the best possible way. And there's a lot of information, a lot of systems. Strength sports, on the other hand, is consumer driven. We're, we're not the athlete. We're not the thing driving the dollars. We are the dollars. We're the, th we're the person buying the thing. And where there's a consumer, there's somebody to be sold. And it's really easy to appeal to consumers with, with some new packaging, something else that's going to solve their problem. And if their problem is, well, I want to be strong fast as possible, or I want to be as big as I can as soon as possible. Well, we've got a different system. We've got a shiny new toy to give you. And there's no doubt that social media, which is conditioned to five second attention spans, probably hasn't helped that in any uh, substantial way. 
yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I'm kind of going on a tangent here. It's interesting. But it's, it's like if you go to buy a car, your pain point is that you need a new car. Okay, you need you need to get to work. That's the pain point. It's, there's there's not much there. I'm sure a, a slimy car salesman will be able to take advantage of that situation. But fitness is like it's like an acupuncture chart of pain points because it concerns the human body. It concerns how people look, how they feel. So it's a very exploitative market in that respect. Yeah, we're. And I, I say this all the time. It's one of those things. I can say it because I'm one of them. Uh, <laughs> we're a very insecure bunch, I think. And that's that's not to dissuade people from uh, training or anything. It's not like the most secure person is going to be the one that doesn't train or engage in self-improvement. But there is something particular about this field, I think, that does attract people that are desperate to change the way people see them or that are desperate to um, gain some satisfaction or just feel like they have some purchase in their life. I think there is a huge overlap and there should be to self-improvement because I always say that I have the most in common with people who take like the hard lessons of strength training and they apply good life principles to their training to where like Wendler did a video the other day that was pretty good. And he was talking about, it was like basic life advice. Your grandfather would give you, Oh, you want to get stronger. It was like, get your affairs in order. You know, it's like, get good sleep, be responsible, uh, hold yourself. It was like basic life advice. And where that overlap is, is I think where you have the most to learn, but also the most potential to actually make something out of your time in the gym. So I think it's win-win there, but um, it is very exploitative, just like any self-improvement niche is because it's not, it's not just, oh, I need to drop my body fat. I need to get my cholesterol down or I need to run faster or lift more weight. Everything is some proxy for this uh, thing that we're trying to get some satisfaction if we're trying to quiet the noise in our head or if we're trying to just feel a little bit better in the moment. And it's not necessarily a bad thing because that drives us to get off our ass and do something and be something more. But if for the sleazy car salesman, that is the easiest thing to just reach in there and and flick and people will they'll get crazy. They'll vibrate with, uh, with their need to get that, that problem solved. So yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing to navigate. And I will say this as toxic and as shitty as online culture is, as sales is, I am actually pretty surprised. And I'm going to say pretty proud that the community does not have more outright charlatanry in it. There's some, but not as much as I feel like there could be given the nature of social media and how, uh, the type of people that get rewarded for the content they make. Uh, I think the big problems have to do with the amount of information rather the fact of information being outright bad or uh, exploitive. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's go back to the training journey. So you've started to weight train and you're starting to get stronger. What was the, the program or the training system that you were using that we, that you started to realize that the magic was taking place? So in the throes of uh, what I would call bodybuilding, everything that was pulled out of, you know, flex and muscular development, it was really correlating effort and time to growth. And I think that's probably one of the things that most people are going to find early on. Just about everything works for you when you're new, which begs the question, if everything works, do, do the recommendations even matter? And I would suggest that they do. There's, you can look at different schools of thought to how newbies train. You have starting strength on this end, you know, the far end, which is minimal, just barbells, very simplistic, but it works. And it's an easy way to get people into training. On the other end, you have what you would do for like youth sports or youth athletes, which is you get people as varied as possible because you want that wide base. So you can look at Boris Shako's programming. He does very specialized powerlifting. It's basically Olympic lifting applied to powerlifting. But for his novices, he has them do bodyweight stuff and dumbbells and unilateral work and, and on and on to try and build that base. So in the beginning, I think a lot of the magic was just I would show up at the gym. Me and my friends would be there for like three hours. Not all of it was productive. We would dick around quite a bit, but we would do a shit ton of work in that time. And every time I got to the gym, I went as hard as I could. I did as much as I could. The real magic after that, so get past the teenage years. Now I'm at a point where I stand to be competitive if I can just get my shit together. I started to get competitive when I realized that that 
doesn't last forever that as you start to get something that looks like strength or as you've just i think accumulated some miles on your body you have to actually invest you have to insert something that looks like deliberate recovery so the effort and the amount of work will take you so far but you can't do the same thing forever because diminished returns set in you can't just hit the gas forever it's nice to think that we're all going to be savages in the gym just if we train for 30 years every workout is just foot on the gas going 100 miles an hour um you know no reps left in the tank leaving it all out there that is not realistic there are chunks of training that can benefit from that but I mean, part of it's, I think, biological, part of it is psychological. The type of person that can do that and, and sustain is very rare indeed, and probably not entirely healthy. So just finding that balance, how much work has to, has to be invested and how, what I have to do to make it sustainable to offset it. I'm going to say, God, if I have to commit to something, I want to say one of the first organized things I ever did that was really organized was... Um, God, was it five, three, one? We're going back like 2009, 2010. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to say the first year five, three, one came out. I had it on my radar. I think I had done some smaller programs before then that were a little varied. One, okay. One of the first things I did buy and do that was a huge learning experience for me. I bought, I think it's Lee Hayward. He had this thing called blast your bench and it was completely gimmicky, but it wasn't, it wasn't useless. It's just, it's something I would recommend to people. But the whole idea was the big selling point was 50 pounds on your bench in three weeks. It's like, holy shit, I want 50 pounds on my bench in three weeks. And I'm sure he had like one guy that saw those gains on it, but it was a high frequency bench program for like three or four weeks, but it was bench five days a week. And it was just DUP. It was daily undulating periodization. It was, you know, triples one day, a pyramid the other day, five sets of 15 the other day. And I got through it. And I remember I grew like crazy. I was like, oh my God, frequency is amazing. But my pec insertions felt like dried peanut brittle. Like I couldn't bench for like a month after that. So I was strong, but I'm like, and that's like a perfect example, right? Of, of hey, if you can keep yourself together, then yes, more work is better. In fact, I would make this statement. If every human being had, you know, titanium tendons, more work is always better. Like I'm going to make that statement. And yeah, that's true. That's shown in the training of elite lifters all over the world. That's what leads to something like the Bulgarian system. That's what leads to like Bill Kazmaier saying he did 70 set workouts and Pujanowski saying he trained for eight hours a day. Like if everything holds together, then yes. But that's a problem is that virtually nobody holds together under that amount of work. So um, yeah, that was a big lesson early on. The magic was the first time I think I ran an effective deload and was like, Oh, okay. Okay. I, I got to be making sure this comes into the equation. So the premise of that book, increasing your bench by 50 pounds, was that your pain point at, at that time? Yeah. Well, that played into, uh, into all of it, which is that I wasn't, I don't want to frame it this way to make it sound, you know, like, like I was, um, you know, working through some type of psychological dysfunction in the worst way possible. But yeah, it's always like, I'm not big enough. I'm not strong enough. I need more and more and more. And that was my motivation. I was eager to be competitive. I love training against my friends, competing against my friends. Um, I had these lofty goals. I think I told a girlfriend when I was like 17, like, I'm going to be the world's strongest man. And she laughed as, as was appropriate. But uh, yeah, I was high on, it was more, I think at that point I was so enamored with it. I think I was more actively eager to hit these goals than I was actively running away from something else. You know what I mean? But, uh, but yeah, at that point, I mean, something that could give me substantially more strength in a short period of time, 100%. And I think that exists in everybody else, you know, in this field today. Yeah. But, but like, as you already explained, it worked. So the point I'm trying to make is, is you had that belief because Lee Hayward told you it was going to add 50 pounds to your bench. You, you chose not to question that. Nowadays, you would look at that through a completely different lens. That's true. That's true. And I wonder how many people did that, got through the first week, said <laughs> this sucks, and then didn't finish it, you know, because that, that's the thing. If you have this entire system, and as time's gone on, we've gotten more complex systems. It's not, hey, do this for three weeks. It's, oh, this is the best way to train, but you got to run it for two years if you want to do it right. That's been my main criticism of something like uh, Conjugate you know, like West side style conjugate it's, it's, and I've never said it can't work, but the learning curve for that thing 
is not going to be followed by like 97% of the people that, that try it because they heard Louis Simmons say at some point that it is so brutally effective. I believe it's effective. Like I've met the people I've talked to people, uh, people about it. I had the pleasure of talking to Dave about it directly. It's like, I believe it was effective the way they did it when you hear the stories, but you know, when somebody's getting that information third hand, they're reading it out of a magazine. They don't have a coach. They don't have somebody to drag their ass to the gym when they don't feel like doing the max effort day that day, or when, when they don't feel like researching what the special exercise rotation is, there's a lot to it. And yeah, you're, you're right. That's a problem. The, the need to have it now, the unwillingness to believe what you're reading and not pick it apart and jump to something else. It's uh that that's a problem given that people are on their own mostly. So, what was the actual transition into strongman? What did that involve? So strongman was my first competitive experience at all. And this is before, this is 2006. So this is before powerlifting actually became popular because people probably, um, a lot of people watching this either haven't been around long enough um, or, or um, maybe weren't even born yet to remember that uh, powerlifting was extremely weird and extremely niche for a lot of years, infinitely more than it was now. So if you open a bodybuilding magazine in 2000, 2002, 2005, it would feature powerlifters in it. They would have interviews. Uh, they would have the best guys of the day occasionally pop in as like a little sideshow. And occasionally, or they'd be on the, uh, the supplement inserts. So you'd get like a two page, like centerfold advertisement from like MHP supplements or something, and they'd have all the benchers. But at the time there was no raw division. So from the eighties, equipped lifting had taken over and it was, oh, that's just what you do. You want a power lift, you need a, a triple ply bench shirt and you need a squat suit and you need to have a crew to help you in it. So that was all powerlifting was. So however off putting you think powerlifting is to the average Joe, that was your only option. And most people were like, what am I? I lifted weights and I'm like, what is that? So um, eventually there was the raw resurgence. CrossFit helped making powerlifting more accessible and driving a lot of people into it. And powerlifting took off. And it's still on that upswing because it is accessible and it is fun for people. And uh, and that that's a really great thing. Going into Strongman, um, it was barely a thing back then. It was in its infancy and uh, really all I had to do was figure out how to do the damn events because I was decently strong at that point. I had a good athletic base. I'd been training heavy for a couple of years. I think when I was 17, like 17 to 19 is where I started doing a lot of singles, doubles, and triples on top of the bodybuilding stuff. Uh, I'd gone through like a minimalist phase where I was just doing barbell work really heavy and it worked really well in that time period. So I was like struggling to figure out, okay, I train in a 24-hour fitness. How do I train a farmer's walk? How do I do a tire flip? How do I do a stone load? And at the time I had no answers. <laughs> so I showed up cold. The first time I did all those events, the very first contest, I remember to this day, uh, farmer's walk, uh, an RV vehicle pull, uh, tire flip, a log, actually it was an overhead medley. There was an axle press and a tire and a, a log press in it. Um, and then there was like one of the, I think like a, a, a yoke walk or something. There was one other classical event in there. And anyways, my first time doing every single one of those was when they said, ready, set, go. And I was terrified. And I think about that a lot. And I was so eager to do it that I didn't care. It was just obvious to me. Well, obviously I have to do this. Obviously it's going to suck, but I want to do this. That's the only way I can do it. And I see a lot today of where people, they have novice divisions. Every gym has the equipment. It's so easy to get access and you know, if you lower the bar, it, it, people won't rise to the occasion. You know, people rise to the occasion that's set for them, I feel like. So now, given that things are easier, I feel like there's still all these barriers people have psychologically. And a lot of it is an unwillingness to be in that uncomfortable position and not have all the certainty set out in front of them for them, which is really unfortunate. So, I mean, yeah, I would say the big transition was just, it was just trying to figure out how to do the events and wrap my head around actually going out and getting the damn thing done right so i need to go back on that because i find something quite hilarious if i've interpreted it correctly you were training in a commercial gym mm -hmm. and you decided to take part in a strongman contest having no prior experience in any of the actual events that took place in that strongman event that's a, yeah that's right <laughs> how did you place 
Um, I place, I remember, I don't remember the number of people there and I don't remember my exact placing. It wasn't podium. I remember it was mid pack. So I think at that point there was at least 10, there were fewer divisions back then. So even though there were less people competing, there tended to be more people in an individual class than you would find today because today there's just so many more classes and novice divisions pull all of those people that would be in there for their first time. It pulls them out. So uh, I placed in the middle, I want to say it was something like 6 out of 12 or 7th out of 12, something to that effect, which, I mean, that was huge in my mind. In my mind, it was like I did. I expected to take last. I walked in, uh, I saw all these guys that were massive. Um, I don't believe my first contest, I don't think there was a weight class. I think it was just an open class. I don't even know where I would verify that. I don't even think they have the contest placings anymore. But a handful of my earliest contests were in the open because they just didn't have a weight class. They didn't have a women's division back then. So, um, yeah, and that wasn't different because that's exactly what I did my first day going out for football. I'd never caught a football in my life. I, did, I didn't know how to throw a football. <laughs> I had no idea where to grab, how to spiral. I didn't know anything about it. I, I spent two years dropping every single football that was thrown to me. So going out and feeling stupid and sucking was something I had gotten, I think, pretty comfortable with. And if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have gone through all that and picked up training. And I knew if it wasn't for doing that in Strongman, I wouldn't have carried on to do everything I've done since. That's that's really impressive um, because I come from Great Britain and Strongman is quite, it's always been big here. Christmas time is always a time when like the family would sit around and watch strong uh, the world's strongest man, New Year's Day. We had guys like Jeff Capes, John Paul Sigmason. These guys were on your telly every single year. So I also worked at a strongman event a good few years back. And it was interesting because you see the techniques that people need to employ in a lot of these events and the equipment that they need to use. I always remember the Atlas Stones and guys would be wrapping glue mm. around their forearms to help them get the balls onto the pillars. So for you just to go in willy-nilly and just try these brutal events, I mean, how did you get through them having no prior experience with any of the techniques that are necessary to excel in some of these events? So. And back then, I will say, um, and this is probably why all the novice divisions are warranted. Uh, back then, uh, because it was newer, the weights weren't as high. So the mark to get a pro card, let's say, in the in the organization, there's one organization that gives out pro cards. It's not really universal for the sport. But in that organization, to get a pro card in either the heavyweight or middleweight class, the bar was much, much lower than it was today. And that's my eternal frustration. I'm like Sisyphus pushing the stone up because as I get better, Everybody else gets even more better. And I'm, I've spent 20 years chasing, but the bar was lower back then. And I had waited to compete. I wasn't like 13, 14 going into my first contest. I had a good seven, eight years of solid training under my belt. So my numbers were decent going in. So having a good strength base made up for most of it. Um, if the weights were how they are today, I would have probably zeroed a couple of events. I probably wouldn't have learned anything other than, gee, I have to get a lot better. So that balance of, of the challenge of the events back then versus how strong I was, that was a big one. But really it was doing too many warm-up sets. I mean, I was so gassed going into the events because I was so excited to like get my hand on a log. Like I think I'd done like eight like <laughs> failed log press attempts to try and somebody was there. Actually, that's where I met Scott Brengel for the first time, who was my um, kind of early mentor. That was the first training crew I worked out at with at uh, East West Strength in Costa Mesa, uh, and he's um, he's put out a ton of pros. Sean D. Marinas, uh, Leifa Engels was the first woman to win the the Women's Pro Arnold the first year they had it. So really good talent came out of there. And I remember Scott he had this thick New Jersey accent. And he'd be, you know, yelling at me like, you know, get your elbows up, get your head through, <laughs> you know, and, and every time he'd catch you feeling sorry for yourself, you know, he'd yell at you. He's like, do you want it? Why are you here? And I just always had his voice in my head. But he was like one of the first ones at the meet judging, uh, giving me technical pointers on how to flip a tire. This is how you grab a stone. And uh, I had to pick up, pick it up on the fly. And a lot of it was just watching other people. And that's the other thing with strongman uh, where powerlifting, I think there's a problem with people running into contests too many one after another there's not as much to learn 
So yeah, getting the pacing down, figuring that out, that's great. That's important. But you can go a couple of years onto a powerlifting meet and come back and it's fine. With Strongman, that's part of the way that you get event experience because the events are so varied and you want to be around other people to see how they do it. Because you and your training crew might have this single approach to this one event and then you travel somewhere and you realize they grip a little bit different or their stance is a little bit different or this one event, they have this strategy. There's a lot of little pointers to pick up. Now, in the beginning, that doesn't matter so much. Really getting strong, being conditioned and having some familiarity with the event that's most of it. If you want to be competitive, those little things are where you lose seconds. And that'll drop you like 20 places at nationals uh, because everything's a foot race. So it, it really is a balance. So I tell everybody the most important thing in strongman, being as strong as, as possible and being as efficient as possible. Like one is not more important than the other. They both have to have to be as elevated as possible. So you, you spoke about conditioning there. Well, where does the conditioning come into in Strongman and what methods do you employ to enhance that? So conditioning is extremely important, but it's not the way that might people that people might think if they hear the term conditioning. I do think the fact that I've always done some type of running, some type of cardio, even when I'm being lazy throughout the year, there are there's still something that gets my heart rate up. That's something I'm never that far away from. So any baseline of work is going to help. But even with that baseline of work, you're not going to, uh, you know, come off the field um, as like a field athlete and go into a strongman event and see a one-to-one -one correlation from that conditioning to what you're doing. The best way to get conditioned for strongman events is to drill the events because you're talking about a minute, maybe a minute and a half of work. So it's a very yeah. specific threshold. And on top of that, not only does drilling the events put you in the right threshold you need to be into, but it teaches you how to pace yourself. So the way that you would attack a 20 cent, a 20 second air bike sprint, that's different than the way you attack a 10 minute jog, right? And the pacing yeah. is very particular and you're gonna perform much, much better if you figure that out. The only way you do it is to run through it. The problem with strongman in general and the people that do it they love doing the events. They love trying different things. They love experimenting. They love testing. It's like, let me see how heavy a stone I can pick today. And that has its place. But people do not like setting a minute on the clock and doing as many stone loads as they can with a very light stone. And they don't like pushing the density. They don't like um, building linearly because it involves more pain. It involves sucking more. So when I program for people, I don't get really elaborate with the training. It's like, oh, you're getting ready for a stone load series. Okay, you're going to do a lot of stone loading for reps. It's like, you're getting ready for a sandbag medley. You're gonna become best friends with a sandbag um, because the learning, it has to overlap with the conditioning. So there's room to do other things. I mean, any, any short sprint is going to carry over in some capacity, sled sprints, air bike stuff. I would generally buy sorts of things that have very easy recovery that aren't that hard on the joints. So both of those kind of fit the bill, but yeah, most of it, as long as you're doing, I would say things like high rep squats, high rep deadlifts, which we have to do anyways for the sport. That does a lot too. You get a lot of really powerful guys that can like rip 800 pounds off the ground. Um, but if you have them do, it does, it doesn't matter what the weight is. If it's a minute, as many reps as you can do, they're going to stop at five. If it's 700 pounds, they'll stop at five. If it's 300 pounds, they'll stop at five. And that's just a lack of uh, conditioning. Some The power athletes generally don't like to get into the weeds. Yeah. So you spoke about having a mentor. Would you say it's very important to have a mentor in Strongman? Oh, absolutely. If, if you want to uh, excel, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure there's a fair number of people that just like doing it for fun and they'll pick it up as they go. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that the the sport and how you engage with it it should serve you and your goals as long as you know what they are but if you are of the mind that i'm going to be good everybody likes to type into facebook i will podium at nationals this year or i will get that <laughs> invite to worlds easiest thing in the world to make those grand proclamations when nobody's really paying attention as to whether or not you will or not um but if that's if you're of the mind that that's what you're you're wanting to do completely because in today's field, you just can't afford to waste the time that it takes to get good at everything. You need somebody there giving you the shortcuts. You need somebody there evaluating how you grab the bag. You know, why are you failing on the, the carries? Uh, why are you slow on this particular movement? And 
I did it the hard way. And I think that's why if I'm an authority on anything, it's that because I figured everything out the hardest way possible. So it stuck with me, but that was a lot of wasted years. I mean, my competitive window is shrinking by the day because it took me so long to get good. So yeah, mentorship is absolutely huge. And it's also mindset. Scott was the first one that taught me how important it is to show up, to not feel sorry for yourself, to not make excuses because it was a crew. And if you brought that lazy bullshit to the crew, it affects everybody, not just you. And that was huge. And in Strongman, nothing's the same ever. So there's virtue in being ready for anything. There's virtue in not relying on perfect conditions because there aren't any. And you can always tell who trained for that, who's been around the block and who hasn't by who's throwing a tantrum because some event got changed or because the weather changed or because they advertised a, a, a regular axle and then they brought out a fixed axle. So uh, specificity is important, but at the same time, you have to be ready for anything. And that's a mentor is going to get you is going to get your mindset straight really quick on that reality. Yeah. How long did your strongman career last for? Well, technically it's still going. I haven't quite, <laughs> I haven't quite retired yet. In fact, I, let's not go throwing around the term career. To, um, <laughs> so I started in, yeah, I started in what, 2006. I've probably, I've done a little over like 50 shows in that time. And I had my biggest performances, I would say pre-COVID. I would say like 2018, probably to like 2021. And then I took two years off. Uh, me and my wife were trying to conceive. We finally did. So she's pregnant now. Congratulations. Thank you. So um, now I don't have to worry so much about that. That was a big thing that was holding over our head financially. Um, and as far as, you know, your endocrine system goes, there's certain considerations you have to take in into account. But yeah, so I'm on my way building back up and I'm probably going to start competing seriously maybe next year. And I'm 36. Yeah. I think I got... I think I got about eight years, maybe 10 of, of real competition. And then after that, I might compete for fun. I might do masters. I might do what other people do and uh, just take up triathlons or something. Yeah. So we'll see. So how did the gym come about? What was the idea to open your own gym? So that came about accidentally. That was serendipity. That was That's an example of the more you try, the luckier you tend to get. Because I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I'd spent 10 years in school. I jumped around between like four different majors, um, spent some time in kinesiology, and I realized that was just a gross waste of time. And that's not to shit on anybody that's in that field. But if you think you're going to get into exercise science to make you better at training, find a different career. Um, I was going to be a math major for a while. I was looking at you know other, other STEM fields, and uh, I ended up just working odd jobs because I realized I made a lot of money like waiting tables and bartending. So I did that for a while. I delivered pizzas for a while and I trained for a long time. Since I was 19, I had done training in some capacity. So I was uh, realizing that I didn't want to be in my thirties waiting tables. So I was looking to uh, start training again and looking into having that be more of a full-time thing this is before I ever posted a video on YouTube. And uh, I got on Craigslist and I just searched in the area and I was looking for a private training studio because there weren't any. Oddly enough, there weren't any in the area. They were all corporate gyms. And I just happened to find this small gym that two guys were running. They had just opened up. It was a powerlifting gym, which at the time, they literally had one rack, one stall mat to do deadlifts on, and a dumbbell rack and a couple of bars. And we went in together and we grew it. We got a different spot. We added more things. And then eventually, they kind of dropped off. And I ended up taking it over. And I had it by myself for a good four or five years. And then we decided to move across the country. So I let it go. But the, the idea was, I mean, that was just my, my luck. It was something I wanted to do. I had expertise in, it, it gave me uh, a little bit of credit, you know, so dropping out of college didn't look so bad when I was a, a small business owner. Yeah. Um, but then that also allowed me to pivot and do what I do online now. So I'm not entirely sure that yeah. I would have this presence if it wasn't for the gym. Yeah. So like, you said it was a powerlifting style gym? Essentially, yeah. We ended up having more strongmen than anything. Um, I, I advertised that more. I ended up hoarding equipment. So there wasn't as much room for all of the monoliths and, and in anything else you might put in there. So um, I, the way I see it, if a gym has a hardy squat rack and a bench that's like not a, a corporate gym bench or a home gym bench, if any, if you buy a rack and a bench from Rogue, you have barbells and plates. 
there's no reason it's not a powerlifting gym because everything yeah. else is uh is frills you know um but that's how they thought of it that's how they started it but we ended up having all types in there yeah and did you coach in that gym yeah yeah i coached uh the entire time i was there yeah yeah, so it was like a coaching-based style gym. It wasn't a gym where like I could just rock up and pay money and use the gym. Oh no, the, the there was open membership, and I would uh, I would put programs on the board. So at any given time, we'd have you know a dozen people running through the the program that I would update on the board. Um, then I had one-on-one -on -one clients that I would train, um, and some people would just show up. I would run like uh, event days on the weekends for strongman. So. That was kind of a, I mean, it was included in membership and that's something people would show up to as they wanted. So there was a lot of like hands-on stuff throughout the day, but no, people could show up and, you know, some people put their headphones in, didn't want to talk to anybody. And some people were just there for one-on-one -on -one, uh, instruction. So were any of the programs that you wrote about in base strength, were they concocted in this gym? Similar. Um, I do have... I, I got in the habit of like taking pictures and kind of filing away every time I wrote something on the whiteboard and I haven't revisited them in a while, but when I uh, filled base strength with the programs, most of them were just, I don't want to say off the top of my head because it pulls from what I was used to, to doing. And that's most of what you see in that book, but really those were examples to show people the different ways that they could utilize the principles I was talking about in the context of all of these different structures and splits, because I could talk about how you would progress a, a main lift, but that's going to look different if you're running a three day per week DUP split versus if you're um, doing some type of like alternating volume and intensity thing versus, I mean, you have methods where you're like alternating from like max effort to repetition work to speed work over like a three weeks. There's a lot of different elaborate ways to concoct training and in people uh, when people see that they end up losing their minds, they end up spinning, you know, they lose the tether that keeps them to earth. So it gets really hard to make decisions. So really my goal with that, instead of giving you 10 programs that you can check off your bucket list, which unfortunately I think is how most people read it. It was just say, <laughs> Hey, this is a way that you can see how it's easier to plug this stuff in than you might think. And it was, it was to kind of give them something they could, you know, sink their teeth into. Yeah, I, th I think the one of the, the hallmarks of a good program is a component of the program that you can take away and use in other programs that you create yourself or just a technique or a, a, a pillar or a principle that you can use. One that stands out to me, and uh, bear in mind, I've been training since 1999, was the, the Bill Mastiff program which the way it was structured with the volume where you would do like three sets of, I forget how many reps it was, then the next week it would be four, and then you, the volume just kept creeping up. Like when you began the program, you had that false sense of security. You thought, right, this is okay. And then by the end of week four, you were just like depressed as you were walking into the gym. So, like, and that was something I had never really seen replicated anywhere. And it's something that I've always used to this day. So for me, it was always just gaining a bit, like a nugget of gold from a program as opposed to the whole program itself. Oh, yeah, that's that's cool. Um, no, that, that, that's important. You should you should be able to learn something. Even if the program's a disaster, you should be able to look at, at something about your experience with it and be like, okay, what did I learn about my tolerance to work? Uh, how I felt under these exercises? What I might need that this program didn't offer? There's always something you can look at. Um, that is something specifically I did take from the gym. And I remember explicitly implementing this because I was trying to find better ways to incorporate a linear periodization style of training where you start out really high volume. And then over the course of the macro cycle, you go to less volume and heavier weight. That's pretty standard. There's just a lot of different ways to do that. And that's another thing. People lose their minds. They're like, well, exactly. How do I add weight? Exactly. When do I deload? Exactly. How hard should this be at week four, at week seven, whatever. And one of the flaws I'd always seen is that the kind of dumbed down what I would call Americanized versions of linear periodization, because this all stems from like Soviet stuff back in the day that applied to like broader sports, um, you know, complex sports that have a lot of moving pieces. You'd see something like a five by 10 on week one. 
and then it would go, you know, four by eight, and then it would go, you know, three by five, and then eventually you're at singles, doubles, and triples. Well, if you're not particularly conditioned, what does a five by 10 look like your first day? It's not particularly impressive. You're going to be sore for like nine days. It's, uh, it's, it's, and anybody that's done that, it, it's horrible. And because I compete, so I always think about training, even hypertrophy, if you're just a bodybuilder, whatever, I always think about training cyclically because you're never conditioned to everything all at once. Yeah, you always have to yeah. ease into it, right? So um, I did that for a group of guys. I had them start at just a few sets because if I put like a set of 12 on squats, everybody would rebel. <laughs> everybody would completely like double digits on squats and deads. You're out of your mind. So I had, I ease them in. I'm like, well, let's build up some capacity. They're not so bad when you get used to them. In fact, keep the RIR like huge. Like don't even get close to failure, make them easy. The only way I could get people to do a set of 10 or 12 was if there was almost no effort involved and they still hated it. But then I crept the volume up and then I slowly crept the intensity up. And what happened was their capacity went through the roof by the time they were conditioned enough where they felt good pushing the weight, then they got hungry. And then I ended up taking, I'm like, how high can I push this up? And I think there was one week where it was like seven sets of eight or something stupid with a compound movement. And it's not with the same weight. It was like with a range of exercises, but I had a handful of guys that just exploded. And you could argue what it was. Was it just that they finally got comfortable enough to do the hard work and the hard work is what came four or five weeks in? Maybe, but I always it always made sense to me. You always start with something manageable, build from there. And that's yeah. kind of what that, that volumizing structure looks like. And if anything else, it tricks people into doing volume work they wouldn't otherwise have done. And I've, yeah. I've had pretty universally good success with that approach. Yeah. Yeah. It was also interesting when you, you speak about people stressing out about the numbers and how much the weight they should use. And I think this goes back to what we initially spoke about in the information age, which is it almost creates a helicopter coaching mm -hmm. style where you're constantly needing your hand held throughout the experience because you are overloaded with information instead of going through that journey of self-experimentation and having that idea that you are going to fuck up at the beginning. The program will never be plain sailing and the fuck-ups should be embraced because that is obviously where you learn the gold is through the pain and the discovery. Yeah, so we move on to YouTube. What was the moment you decided that you're going to bring this knowledge to the world in that respect? So I had always wanted to do something uh, online. Um, and part of that was just the lack of direction I had. Um, I like the idea of having this field be my life's work because I had spent so much time and this was like the one thing I was knowledgeable about. So it felt weird to go pursue a profession somewhere else in something I had no expertise in or didn't care about. I just didn't really believe that it would be something that I could do. Um, going back 10, 12 years from right now, I had like taken, not taken, but I had like watched videos on courses on how to make money online, things that you might think of as kind of gimmicky, but there was a lot of good information back then that was allowed to marinate over the years that I applied yeah. now. And you hear some pretty sound advice if you sift through enough of them where somebody might be completely lost. Like, how do I start making money online? There's a lot of different platforms. Basically the easiest way, it's maybe not the most lucrative, but it's the easiest place to most people is if somebody has a problem, you try to solve a problem. And that's what most business is. You talked about pain points and that, that type of sales language is extremely important. It's not just tricking people into buying from you, even though it can be used for that, it can be used for the dark side. But if you want a successful business, somebody have a problem, can you solve it for them? And if you can, you're going to have a customer base for life. So that's what I focused on. So it's 2016, 17, I think I put up my, my first video. The gym was empty. I had a massive whiteboard. Yeah, first whiteboard video. Yeah. yeah. And it, my first video was how to cut weight. And it's to this day, I think it's one of my top three videos out of like 500 videos uh, because I went over my weight cut, which is like 35 pounds in like a 24 hour period was my biggest weight cut. And it was just me in front of a whiteboard and it took off. So that told me that I could potentially do this. And I think the biggest asset I had was that I didn't do what so many people do on social media, which is immediately make it about themselves. Uh, being entertaining, having a personality, having something that people like to watch, that's huge if you have it. 
Yeah. Well, odds are that you don't have it. So instead of making it about yourself, you know, make it about the person watching what they're going to take away from it. So I never um, struggled with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've obviously got quite a ton of wit. You've got a rapier wit. I think that stands through in your videos. However, the one thing that always catches my attention, because I remember when your videos were first coming through, they, they were a breath of fresh air. And they resonated with a lot of people because they were just a guy with a whiteboard. And that's quite novel in a world which is saturated with drones flying over gyms and guys climbing out of Bugattis with a big bag around their shoulders about to start their daily yeah. fucking gratitude journal or some shit like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas you were just a guy dispensing information in front of a, a whiteboard. And that always seems to catch people eye. Oh, it's almost kind of similar to Iron Wolf with the Buppy videos, where it was just a guy doing Buppies, but it was captivating to watch. Was that a strategy you like had in mind, or was the low-tech approach just due to circumstance? Yeah, it was circumstance. It was, that's what I had. And I was telling you before this, you know, you were talking about your microphone or your camera, and that advice still stands today. This isn't just like, you know, COVID or COVID, uh, pre-COVID YouTube. This isn't just like uh, social media in its infancy or whatever. Even today, if you can satisfy the, uh, the if you can give the answer to a particular problem, you can film it on a trio from 2006. You could film it on like a first generation Blackberry. It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> the audio could be terrible, but if it's to the point, the big thing I always heard in the beginning was, Oh, I appreciate you don't waste time. And even now I try to keep my introductions very, very short, but I, I can monologue sometimes, but uh, I would have the whiteboard and be like, Hey guys, this is what I'm doing. This is what we're talking about today. And then I get into my graphs and my visuals and I would just write and people love that. I got right into it because it was about the topic and that was it. And looking back on it, they still get a lot of frequent views. There's still a lot of engagement and they look like shit. <laughs> they sound like shit. It's echoey. Um, but yeah, that was completely circumstance. It just happened to work out in my favor. But that also forces you to focus on the substance of what it is that you're saying. So yeah. I, I always pretended that I was talking to myself from 15 years ago. What information did I need back then that I couldn't get? And that that made it that made it pretty easy. It made it pretty straightforward. Yeah. I think there's a big lesson to be learned here. And it's just going by what you've said in the last hour. From school, where you were thrown in at the deep end. And then when you decided to get involved in sports, where once again you were thrown in at the deep end. And then the strongman competition. And you kind of know where I'm going with this. And then opening a gym, which is quite daunting. And then just starting YouTube with a whiteboard. Do you think it's, it's this personality trait that's taken you this far, Alexander? It's, def it's definitely uh, a factor. And I've thought a lot about my success because uh, it's never just one thing, right? It's I'm extremely privileged in more ways than one, but I also have enough friends who are similarly positioned to have done less. So you always have to think, okay, how much is it? My personality, how much of it is? what what my lifestyle was like early on what my parents were like what they ingrained me with there's there's probably a genetic component i mean i have some entrepreneurs in my family my grandfather um owned an antique car business and his entire business he liked antiques so he spent his entire life collecting uh, turn of the century you know model t's you know he, he had a model t from like 1915 um and he fixed up cars and he ran a business very lucrative very successful my brother was very much the same way. My brother doesn't have a, a higher education, but he was a very good salesperson. He spoke well, never had a problem asking anybody for anything. And he turned that into a career. So definitely, I think I had a belief. And I think you met, you touched on that earlier, the belief that if you do this, you will get something uh, on the other end. I have benefited insanely from an irrational belief that it will all be okay. <laughs> Whether or not I deserve it, it was more, more optimism, I think, than anybody my age um, had the right to believe. And that's something I stuck to stubbornly, almost religiously. And I remember having those conversations as a teenager. I remember kind of getting that ethos carved out. You know, what do I actually believe about what I'm capable of? And it was a lot of gross overestimations, you know? And 
I failed a lot of times too. That has to be paired with an understanding of what, because you will fall flat on your face. And I have a lot of those to look back on too. So it's not just enough to believe. You almost have to be impervious to the failure while also recognizing the failure means something and there's something to take from that and apply to something else. But it's like a game. I mean, it's no different than any other game. And I couldn't imagine living life where I didn't have that to grab onto. So uh, I think even if it didn't work out, I'd still be toiling in my basement, figuring out, you know, okay, let, let's try this over here. I'm just very fortunate that I tried enough times. I was able to, you know, so the, the more often you try, the luckier you tend to get. And I, I think that's what this is an example of. Okay. Well, well, thank you, Alex. It's always great to end on an inspirational note. So Alex, before, before I leave, can you please tell the viewers where they can find you? Absolutely. My YouTube channel is the easiest way. It's just my name, Alexander Bromley. You'll find me pretty easily. And I'm also on uh, Instagram at Brahmarama, which is also pretty easy to find. And uh, that's about it. You can DM me. You can reach out to me there. I, I interact uh, pretty well. Um, if you absolutely want to message me and get a response immediately, I, I respond uh, pretty, pretty close to daily on my Patreon as well. So that's the easiest okay. way. I'll obviously put these links in the description. So anyway, Alex, it was an absolute honor speaking to you. I really enjoyed that. I really did enjoy that. Thank you. Thank you for Very having funny. me. I had, a, had a blast. Yeah, absolutely. If you can just stay on when I press stop recording, that would be appreciated. So anyway, guys, thank you very much.